Today's episode is brought to you by the Vegas Beer Guys and the Brew Bar. The Everything's Equal podcast contains explicit language, and I will not go to my room. Hello and welcome to the Everything Sequel Podcast, the Karate Kid Edition. My name is Michael Schatz. I am from the How Dare You Awards. Joining me in today's adventure is, of course, Tom Stewart from Lonesome Whistle Productions. Give it to me, Tom. Bad bull make good soup. <laughs> That's one of Miyagi's great zingers from this. Uh, this uh, I in the pantheon of great zingers from this movie. <laughs> oh yeah, this I was gonna say this god awful movie, but I should probably say this Buddha awful movie. <laughs> well, ladies and gentlemen, Tom and I are discussing the next Karate Kid. <laughs> A 1994 adventure directed by Christopher Kane. Do you know Christopher Kane, Tom? I looked him up, but I've already forgotten uh, what, it, what other things he did, but I remember they were surprisingly good. <laughs> well. Oh, or, or am I wrong there, too? Uh, yeah, not if you're including Gone Fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Is that Danny Glover and Go- Joe Pesci? And Joe Pesci. We have the principal. With uh, James Belushi, and he did direct the first Young Guns movie. That's, I think, what I was looking at, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's not a bad movie. No, and... Uh, but it makes you wonder what the fuck happened with this movie. The <laughs> mid-90s happened. Maybe. I think you're right, yeah. I mean, this this is a this is a, one of our carbon-dated movies. This is a movie that's, like, se- sealed in... Uh, Sealed into the early to mid nineties, like you know, Z- like Zardin, Zardin non and Ursa in that mirror. Yeah, <laughs> you went with the sequel reference. Well done. <laughs> I, you know what, Mike? I I I can't not think in terms of sequels anymore. Ah, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> it's my entire frame of reference for everything in my life. Let me ask you yeah. this: how how is this affecting your family? Like, do you have to subject your wife to to any of these sequels, or are you always watching them alone? I'm typically watching them alone. This one, actually, okay. uh, my wife um, uh, watched a little bit with me and... Uh, quit, and then quit? <laughs> well, I think, you know, she she came in the middle of a, a, a fight sequence... And, you know, she was surprised as, as probably, you know, any viewer in 1993, four, four, four yeah. was to see Hilary Swank rather than Ralph Macchio appear out of the pile of bodies. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so, all right, let's get into it. This movie had a budget of $12 million, only made 8.9 in the USA. Managed to scrape 15.8 million worldwide cumulatively, but of course, as always, there is an end to every series, Tom, and this is the movie that killed the series. Rightly so, I would say. Cinematically, yeah. Um, which is interesting for for a couple of reasons. The first being that 
this we I think we talked about before this has a reboot quality to it, even though it's a continuation. Yes. It, it's it's right. very much about resetting, um, the the, narrative. the resetting the narrative. And yeah. So you know, but not well. <laughs> but it, but you know what it effectively <laughs> did was was uh, create a point of no return, which is sort of exactly right. the opposite of what it was trying to do. Uh, but also just, you know, and then again, we've talked a little bit about this and I don't think either of us have seen it, but, you know, uh, Cobra Kai has picked up the mantle of continuing the, the story of, uh, I mean, the story of Daniel, the story of uh, Crease Johnny, uh, which is something that this film is singularly failed to do. So it's it I think. With without this movie, there would be less demand for something like Cobra Kai. Maybe it's it's funny. It's like it speaks to what you and I just before we got started, we were talking about just musing about sequels and and no surprise there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> the nature of sequels and and what they should do and what you value in them and. There's nothing easy about making a sequel, right? I mean, even in our description of our own podcast, we talk about we're discussing the most difficult of movies to get right, the sequel. Yeah. And boy, did they not get it right. <laughs> Just everything goes wrong in this movie. Yeah. Let me ask you this. I'm curious. Had you seen this movie before you watched it for our purposes? No. Me either. And I'm going to go ahead and declare victory then because you <laughs> said that you loved Karate Kid 3. You think it's a good movie. And yet it did not propel you far enough to go see the next Karate Kid. So I'm going to say that that movie is a piece of shit because it couldn't make you go see the next Karate Kid. But, and I will declare victory. But I'm also a horrible misogynist, as we know. <laughs> I'm not seeing a movie starring a woman. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, you, what? The next Karate Kid is a lady? <laughs> it doesn't get more midnight. I was not offended by the lady. I was offended by, oh, we, we've, we've, we've fallen off the turnip truck. We, we clearly are grasping at straws now. What, what's kind of interesting... In trying to keep this franchise going. I, I was I was half looking forward to this because uh, exactly the fact that I'm not a misogynist uh, in, in, you know, despite what I just in said. In real life. In real life, yeah. <laughs> um, because... For the purposes of this the, podcast, just, go ahead. For the purposes of this podcast, <laughs> I'm a bad human being. I have to be because the people who make these movies are bad human beings and I yeah, have to exactly understand right. the Manhunter style in order to do this podcast. <laughs> um, but, uh, which is which is a sequel. Uh, <laughs> see, I can't think outside the sequel box anymore. I know. But my point was that... I'm starting to dream in sequels. Everything on the outside of this movie makes it look like it's a really progressive piece of filmmaking but everything inside is about keeping women down and i think that was the right that was the the real tragedy of this movie that that even if even if it was executed badly you know i might still stick up for it politically but i can't even do that because it's uh, what it does to women in the frame of this movie is horrific yeah 
it sets back the cause of women, if anything. Agreed. So even if you're just looking from a perspective of costuming. Right. The, um, you know, you're talking. So Pat Morita is back. Oh, boy, is he back. He he is back 100%. Ralph Macchio, gone. Mentioned once, out of sight, out of mind, beyond that. And in his place is, of course, Hilary Swank. Mm-hmm. Hilary Swank in this movie is constantly wearing jeans with, I think, essentially a sweatshirt. But the sweatshirt is, like, bunched up so that you can see her tiny waist but tight enough so that you can see her boobs mm. <laughs> in a way where I constantly was just thinking, what old creep demanded that fucking costume? Yeah. The, I guess the same old creep that put her in a ball gown and made her dance, you know? Yes, right. <laughs> right. Didn't see that coming. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. I did not see karate waltz coming either this is and this you know just to, to yeah. being taught the waltz through karate to make an, another old, kind of overall point about gender i i don't think that uh julie hillary swank should have been right. daniel in a dress by any means but there should be differences in the way that she's portrayed because she is a woman but Sure. That shouldn't revolve around the most retrograde stereotypes of what we think of femininity. That's my big objection. And right, this, exactly. this movie is trying to do a kind of Pygmalion, My Fair Lady transformation of this character. Um, so that's their kind of angle on how we do, on how we switch it from male a to woman female. In the, right. Is yeah. that we have this kind of Cinderella story, I think is probably a better way to put it, in the middle of it. Right, exactly right. They turn it into a Cinderella story. Which is just insulting because... And then again, speaking to peripheral movie stuff, also not helped by her love interest clearly looking like a almost 30-year-old man. <laughs> like, there's no way that guy's in high school. No way. And, and Hilary Swank is, you know, probably... 17 or 18 when she was filming this movie, maybe 19 or 20 when it came out. Mm. And that guy is, you know, it's like it's like they did the exact same thing that Ralph Macchio would not allow them yeah. to do in Karate Kid Part 3 when he was 28 or something like that. And an actual 16-year-old girl is playing the high school student. And because of the time fuck up. Yeah. He's an old man, not an old man, but you know what I mean. In comparison, he's not a high school student, but he's playing a high school right. student or just out of high school still. And the actor himself had to say, no, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. And then I <laughs> just like in the next Karate Kid, they double down on that idea. It's like, yeah, this guy's clearly like a 50 year old man playing a high school <laughs> student, but uh, let's make him the love interest. Well, may I mean, maybe, uh, Ruby, maybe Ralph Macchio was the last obstacle to you know, the film moving into full pedophilia. <laughs> right. I mean, maybe, maybe, you know, that was, that was the, um, that was the last time they listened to, uh, to reason on, on anything. Well, uh, it, there's no evidence to suggest they started listening to reason until recently when people started getting arrested. <laughs> 
Oh, I, yeah, I, mean, I, I see what but... you mean. I, I just meant generally in terms of, you know, uh, the, it's interesting that Ralph Macchio is behind the scenes, you know, t- sort of basically... Shaming them into doing the right thing. Shaming them to doing the right things. And, and there, there clearly isn't that kind of on-set figure in this movie. Right, yeah, right, right. Because I, 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 I also I had a kind of... Epi- I had a lot of epiphanies in this movie. It's probably because so much of it is in a monastery. Um, had a lot of, <laughs> right. a lot of you self Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I, I, there's a lot of comedy in this movie, like a lot of comedy. Right. And as it went on, I thought, you know what? I like the way this comedy is being executed. It's the choice to make everything comedy that is the problem. I have no problem watching, you know, Happy Days, Pat Morita doing some, you know, fun kitchen-based karate jokes. Like, sure. Like, great, you know? Uh, but, you know, he's an accomplished... He's an accomplished comic actor. I've got, right. He's good at this stuff. There's no, like, two ways about that. It, every single choice well, to go in that direction is, is a mistake. Right. One of my notes is, the problem is that this movie is shot like a sitcom. Yes. That's the problem. Because, I mean, go back to the original movie. That movie's funny. Yeah. That movie's comedic throughout, but there's actual drama as well. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's And that's what works about the movie. I mean, we... we... This movie, dramatically, is a mess. Absolutely. It, it, yeah. it goes nowhere. Uh, and then it goes very fast down all the wrong roads. It only... <laughs> The only place it goes to is Boston. Yeah, which, and again, like, you know, I, I, I definitely seeing a trend here, like, uh, a, a, you know, a fine idea done badly because I like, it's like, oh, let's go to the East Coast. Why not? Daniel's from the East Coast. You know, this is like an LA, LA-centric movie. Do some, uh, an LA-centric series. Let's do something, let's mix it up geographically. No problem with that. Well, let's, yeah, and let's fill in some exposition for the listeners. So if you haven't seen the movie, <laughs> what happens is a, it's a war buddy, right? Well, buddy I have died. a few questions about the setup for this movie. Um, I think, again, I think it's a, it's a great, it's a great way to get Miyagi to Boston is through. Yeah, perfectly serviceable. Through this, um dedication ceremony for his his war unit um right uh but in that he meets not meets he he uh has a reunion with the widow of someone he served with correct um and very quickly he manages to con her out of her home am i reading this wrong that yeah no exactly (laughs) that's my note it's they're doing a house swap, and what this means. I don't get is... the sense he's taking no for an answer on this. <laughs> I know I have a very you low just, opinion of Miyagi. You were just, but yeah, I was gonna say you're just collecting more evidence for your theory that that Miyagi is a terrible person. But to me, the worst person is the grandmother, the widow. Yeah. Because the, she is the grandmother I totally of Hillary Swank's. She was even the grandmother character, Julie. She's not right. a mother, is she? So that doesn't make sense. No, she's the grandmother. Hillary Swank's parents have died, right. 
So, you know, Julie's going through some shit. But what Grandma decides to do is abandon her and house swap and go to Miyagi's house in L.A., which is the most convoluted way for them to get Miyagi to stay in Boston. I mean, it's just where you think, all these people are terrible. I hate them. Yeah. (laughs) They're awful. Don't abandon your granddaughter in her moment of need. You're going to severely fuck her up for doing that. And Julie is introduced in such a confusing way where she is calling herself by a name other than the name that she has, which when you're doing exposition, I mean, I'm not a professional screenwriter, (laughs) but I don't think it's I don't think it's a good move to introduce your character that no one's ever seen or heard of before with the wrong name. Correct. You know, the only uh, that's that's that sounds like something, you know, that would be in <laughs> Arthur Spooner's uh, screenplays in The King of Queens, you know, where every, every character. I did Arthur. have a note here where I was like, I, yeah, I just have a note here that I was like, wait, what? <laughs> yeah. So it's very uh, there's so much that I mean, there's so much that's strange about those scenes. Uh the the war widow i can't remember her name but she offers miyagi some potatoes and he says miyagi is a rice man remember rice man that i was just going to mention that this yeah i mean so this is interesting for so many reasons you know the fact that saying i'm a rice man is the most mid 90s way of saying that that you could possibly if you if you told a robot like a <laughs> robot in a, an ai in a computer Give me mid-90s way of saying I only eat rice. That was what would come out. Um, Well, and I kept thinking, like, load this, load that line into a computer and the computer would break trying to figure out. Is this racist? Is this obviously trying to make a racial point? But, you know, it's sort of like a human being of any ethnicity can have more than one carb in their diet. The other thing that really, really struck me, and and this is like, even in this movie's best moments, they just drop the ball. Uh, Because the the opening uh, dedication ceremony is really, is just, it's a really potentially lovely moment. Because, Mm -hmm. you know, we're taking aside time, we're using the Miyagi backstory to basically honor Japanese American history. Right. In a way that, Certainly in 1994, America wasn't necessarily prepared to talk about internment camps and, and the like, you know, and that's the but, of course. But, right. but in the way that they do that is they have the widow getting up to give a speech. And the first thing she says is, although many families were in internment camps and I was like, I don't know much about public speaking, but aren't you supposed to start with a joke? Don't go up front with the internment camps. <laughs> So that makes no dramatic sense that she would begin a speech that way. But, you know, kudos to the movie for even going there. But they just, they can't, they can't seem but to. But they drop the ball. They can't seem to handle anything. That was my note. I Because I, I wrote the same thing. I said, leading with internment camp. <laughs> oh, you did? You had exactly the same notes. Yeah. Uh, and, and But then after that, I wrote, this movie's dropping the fucking ball. It really is. All right. Well, okay. We're just getting started, everybody. We are talking about 1994, The Next Karate Kid. 
Uh, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Tom, we're going to delve deep into the plot. I'll put in quotes of this Nobody movie. Nobody can see you do those quotes. I know. <laughs> All right, we'll be right back this after this. Stay film. tuned. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? Do you like beer? I like beer. It's required by law that you like beer when you're living in San Diego, California, but even I can get confused and dizzied by the amount of choices that you can see at your local beer store. What's a person to do? I'll tell you what you do. You'll watch the Vegas Beer Guys, a live show on Instagram and Facebook, and they will set you right as to what beers you should have in your life or should not have in your life. The Vegas Beer Guys are brought to you by Dan Aker, the beer professional, and Stephen Weiss, self-proclaimed beer novice. They'll drink beers for you and drink beers with you. Go ahead and check out their live shows and they'll tell you which beers you should be having in your fridge. Everybody wants the perfect combination of malt and hops in your life and Dan Aker and Stephen Weiss are the perfect combination of fantastic and wonderful. Check them out on Facebook. Check them out on Instagram. Find them. You're going to watch their show and love their show. They give away free merch during their shows. So go ahead and check out the Vegas Beer Guys. What a great time. And we're back. Tom and I are here talking about once again, the next Karate Kid starring Hilary Swank and Pat Morita. Some of the old band is back here, too. Not the old band in the sense from other uh, Karate Kid movies, but, you know, just people you knew from the time. Well, uh, uh, Michael Ironside as, as the baddie in this movie. I thought you were going to say the old band, like, literally. Like, that it's... that Because you, you are right there, too. It's Bill Conti's, you yeah. know, fake Eastern... Um, score. Score. Zamfir's Panpipes. Zafmir's? Zam. Well, how do you say his name? Zafmir? I don't know. Basically, like the, the he's like the Panpipe Kenny G. As right. far as I right, 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 exactly. As far as I can tell. <laughs> but we don't have Avildsen. We didn't mention. I mean, we mentioned that it's directed by Christopher Kane, but John G. Avildsen did not direct this movie because he was directing Eight Seconds. Hmm. The Write a Bull story with Luke Perry. Oh, I thought you meant he was like. But you do have Walton Goggins, and this has got to be a one of the first roles for Walton Goggins, right? That's one of my notes. I put, you know, apropos of nothing, I just wrote Walton fucking Goggins. Yeah. <laughs> So and Walton we, Goggins, we both, my, note we is, my note is that we have a uh, tight jeans commando group known as the Alpha Elite, question mark? Here's the thing. <laughs> my confusion about this movie continued because, and I think it was because I was kind of coming in off Karate Kid 3. Terrible movie. And I was looking Terrible for movie. areas in this. Sorry? <laughs> Terrible movie. Go on. Um, <laughs> some would say it's a terrible movie. <laughs> But because I was coming in off that and, you know, I was thinking I was, you know, I was uh, trying to be alert to where there were continuities because there were so few. Right. Because I didn't I didn't want to write this off as a I was doing the same thing. Total reboot. 26 minutes until we even hear Daniel's name mentioned. Right. 
And I just assume because they're identical in every single way that this was Cobra Kai. Yeah. Because in But Karate as part Kid of 3, a school, Tom. Like why well, I I have like four notes that say what school is this where where you have a group of kids known as the Alpha Elite going around beating people up, yeah. telling lies about them to get them into trouble. They're the security guards for the school. Other students are the security guards. Yeah. Led by Michael Ironside, a clear monster. <laughs> yes. So, but but my thinking was that, that Terry Fisher in Karate Kid 3 has a line about how they're franchising Cobra Kai nationally. Mm-hmm. And in my head, in my adult sequel, sequel continuity brain, brain, you saw, yeah, they all were... I was I was like okay so this is this is the result of that you know Cobra Kai is now n- gone national <laughs> Come so... on Tom they were throwing their t-shirts back at them and getting rid of their flyers that didn't happen nobody wants that Cobra Kai <laughs> No and you but you know that like I would have preferred I think that would have been a better way to go um right rather right. I than see what you're saying an exact clone of the same organization uh, which is what we have with the Alpha Elite. Um, but the, again, like something, I, I kind of liked the fact, I thought it, it, it looked very progressive. Because think about it, in the mid-90s, you know, the, urban violence in schools is starting to become like a, you know, a, a conservative... Hot button issue. Yeah, conservative talking point. And this movie's taking the opposite position, but saying that basically it's the it's the you know, the white supremacist meathead rapists who are fucking up schools and the kids, you know, the the kids of all colours are great. Right. You know, they're 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 fine. It's like they're they're being they're being treated as criminals um because there is this white supremacist fantasy that they're creating violence in schools. But the only violence that's being created is by the, you know, the the, the people who are supposedly protecting them. Right. So I like that overall, you know, that overall idea. It also speaks to our, it speaks to our time, perhaps even better than it does in the mid nineties. But um, yes, and that was the thing that was alarming to me, actually. <laughs> but I mean, it it's it's just strange how it all plays out. I mean, when you meet. Not the first time you meet these people, but when you see them all together for the first time in a group, they're playing a game called Bull in the Ring. Mm-hmm. Where one person... I used to play a game called Bull in the Ring for Pop Warner football, where one person would be in the middle with pads on and a helmet, mm. and another person would just race in, and you're just tr- trying to not let them get past you. Mm. And you'd have to just kind of block them. And then you'd hear, hut, and somebody else would come in. And you have to do it like 10 times in a row, and then somebody else would come in. In this one, it's like they're attacking you with knives and shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's just like, it seems is, is this... very unsafe for a Boston public school. Or I guess maybe it's a private school, but still. <laughs> is, this the, is this the scene where Pat Morita as Miyagi comes over. Yes, he just walks up and wants to find Julie and then he gets threatened. Like he's like in that scene he's like a karate Columbo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah he's like playing this harmless old man 
And then at the very and at the very end, he like he turns and you know reveals that he is this. I I I really thought the st- way the story was gonna go was that you know um, Michael Ironside was gonna call up Terry Fisher and say uh, you ever heard of this guy Miyagi and he's gonna be like oh you better watch yourself. <laughs> Maybe that's the movie I wanted to see. You I'm telling you right now, you were early on giving this movie way too much credit. I was, and I kept, um, <laughs> according to my notes, I kept believing it was Cobra Kai until about three quarters of the way into the movie, because I've got, I've got a, I've got a note that just says, "Are we going to talk about Cobra Kai at any point?" <laughs> Their badges visually are so similar. Oh like my gosh, that is fantastic! Uh, Cobra Kai never entered my mind. I knew Cobra Kai was going to not be a feature in this movie. Great. And that they were just replaced with the Alpha Elite. Once again, I'd like to say their name the, is the Alpha Elite. Which is like an unlicensed Cobra Kai knockoff. Oh, man. <laughs> and so, I mean, you alluded to it earlier, but <laughs> essentially the bulk of this movie takes place because Julie has been suspended for two weeks. Yes. And that's how we get to the monastery, to the monks. <laughs> She's really not ready for that monastery. No. Although in her defense, I, I again, I, I, you know, hashtag blame, Mar- blame Miyagi. Um, Miyagi really should have given us some primer on how to act in a monastery. Yes, exactly. I think they're Thank really you. both at fault. She shouldn't be going around first thing in the morning, screaming her head off in the middle of a monastery. Yes, that's my first note. Just yelling as she runs past monks and laughing. Uh, the other thing that that's kind of, uh, again, I, I, I sort of, I don't object in principle, but it's so badly executed that I ended up hating it, was the idea that she's not, uh, because da- Daniel was a complete novice. Mm-hmm. Right, 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 right. Whereas she, she has already is... been taught karate by her grandfather, who Miyagi taught karate too. So, by proxy, she's already been taught by Miyagi. Which well, I she think reveals... it's funny too because you find out, say, in Karate Kid Part Two, that essentially that this is really only supposed to be passed down from father to son. It seems like. Right. But in Karate Kid 2, they made a special exception for Sato because I can't remember why. (laughs) I don't think a reason is given, Michael. Stop trying to imply that they thought about this question. So it's like Sato's taught, then he teaches Daniel, now he's teaching Julie. For a guy who's only supposed to pass this on to his own offspring, he's just throwing karate fucking everywhere, this guy. Yeah. And and this is kind of revealed through a, a, a sort of one of the movie's many pastiches, parodies of martial arts movies, mm-hmm. I guess, uh, where she she jumps on the hood uh, of a car, a moving, jumps onto a moving car, and it's kind of revealed that she already has karate superpowers. Um, so I like that idea that that she's not a co- a complete novice, but you're right. And she's also not a karate kid. <laughs> But she looks like a novice for the rest of the movie, even after training. Right. But also, so 
this and, she, I, and I also she's the other upset. Thing I also she, really... She's upset and she runs out into the street and there's a car coming straight at her. And mm-hmm. then you have like a zoom close up of her crouching down. And I would swear that I remember like a six million dollar man sound. Yeah, it is. It is. As she leaps on top of the hood of the car. Yeah. And then he. You know, which this... is also a you know, which is also like a, a kind of martial arts movie sting kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> which is what I think they're going for, but it could equally just be the six million dollar man that they're trying to do. Oh here. man. And I, I also like the fact that, that she's you know, refuses to be part of his exploitation scheme when she right. says I'm not she says, I'm not waxing anyone's car. Yes. Right. And she puts up a fight when he tries to uh uh, in in a development of his exploitation business model, he starts to um, hire her services out, out. to other people, yeah. You're gonna to babysit. local families as a babysitter. <laughs> and she puts up a, a little bit of a fight to this, and I thought that was kind of... Um, that was interesting. Well... Uh, development. So, uh, let me ask you this. does Is this movie even... Is it because... The one thing I thought the movie got right was, at least initially, all of her pain and anguish with having her parents suddenly be gone out of her life. And so you have this sort of movie trope where the stranger has to win over the the, the girl. Like, like these mm-hmm. two people that don't know each other and Miyagi has to kind of win her over and bring her over to her side Correct. or to his side. Was that successful for you? Because I um, really couldn't decide. I kept no. going, this is starting to work. Oh, nope, nope, that's not yeah. working at all. <laughs> that's And that's I just exactly. kind of went back and forth where at the end I, I thought, nope, doesn't work. Fuck you. <laughs> you know, as, as, as exploitation aside, right? their, relation, their relationship is, is so hazy in so many different ways. He's At the beginning of the movie, she, she's sort of like... You know, positioned as the as the the rich heiress, and he's the 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 family valet and chauffeur. Mm-hmm. He's driving her he's around. Driving her to school. Right. I mean, driving Miss Daisy is only a few years ago. A big, you know, Oscar Oscar fodder. Right. And then later on in the movie, you know, he's like Richard Gere in Pretty Woman to her. Right. <laughs> when they when they're transforming her into a into a debutante into a uh, a Karate Kid debutante. Yeah, so their relationship is always uh, unclear. I also, I mean, I don't understand why he disapproves so much of her love interest, right. um, Eric. You know, he's like seen rolling his eyes when they're together. I'm like, you basically pimped out Daniel <laughs> to various women. <laughs> why? You, I mean, are you just a horrible misogynist like I pretended to be? Um, I don't think yeah I, I I think you're going a little too far in your Miyagi hatred. I don't know that he's pimping him out. Maybe you could make the argument for number two, but everything else Daniel did on his own. Uh, and I don't well, think he even pimps him out. In I know Daniel two. thinks he's doing this all his own, but behind the scenes Miyagi is pulling the strings. Pulling I mean, strings. We, it's been established. <laughs> Oh my god. So it's it's uh yeah, it's a very odd and I think just like I said, I like I like that she's putting up this fight to him trying to exploit her. 
for unpaid labor. Um, <laughs> but I don't like that leads us to these. I don't know that that's as va- much of the movie as you're saying it is, though. It's more like just your just to build up against the narrative you're creating yourself for she ends the terrible up babys- monster you think Miyagi is. <laughs> she ends up babysitting. Um, just these awful, these awful kids, right? Of kids running around, and it's just this, this like early nineties obsession of trying to make everything kid friendly. Mm-hmm. Is it's monstrous here? It takes over the movie like a virus, and we we haven't even got to the monks monks bowling. I yeah. know. <laughs> and, and and dancing and dancing to the cranberries. Yes. One of those two things is too much. Uh, right? Yes. What? <laughs> and I'm thinking about, you know, this movie is coming off the back of successful uh kind of family movies like Uncle Buck and Home Alone. Uh-huh. Uh Drive, you know, I see a little bit of driving Miss Daisy in there, a little bit of Pretty Woman. I think, I think it is like they are just scrambling to come up with any kind of. I think that basically, you know, they want they want to have a woman as the uh, well, a girl, I suppose, as the Karate Kid. Uh, but that, in this time and place, just puts so ma- throws so many, you know, spanners in the works for male screenwriters and producers right. that they're just throwing anything they think might be successful at this movie like right. d- d- do a scene from pretty woman make it a little bit like driving miss daisy um let's have that scene that's a bit like the one in home alone well like, i think a lot of this movie is a lot of this movie feels like trying to fit a square peg in a round hole yeah you know and and the, you know the the <laughs> One of the things that has been happily consistent up to this point in the series, and this is a series which has virtually no consistency of any kind, (laughs) is that Miyagi is cool and tough. Mm -hmm. And this movie wants to undo, unravel that too, which is, I mean, he has... Well, is that a product of just... Pat Morita getting older. I mean, it, again, I think it's just about it's about dropping the ball. Like he has an incredibly, you know, he has a, a really, really cool, potentially cool moment in this where he catches an arrow out of midair. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a great moment, and then it's followed up with the line, "Thanks for the arrow." And it's like, <laughs> oh, you ruined it. That was your only cool moment in the film. You ruined it by talking. It should be noted that that was his birthday gift. <laughs> so I just, you know, I think he, he's he's there. He's cracking wise all the time. Um, yeah. He, he, he's like, talking way too much. Yes. I'll agree with that. And and part of that is, is his attempt at humor to try and get her over to his side, to get her to trust him a little bit. You know, after being abandoned by her, her grandmother. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, I clearly, like, when he's driving her in the car and talking about hamburger tempura with French fry. Right. Yeah, but that's the first, yeah, exactly. It's like you know, the he's, worst he, jokes. He is, he's trying to break. He's trying to break her down, break her down her bradishness and her like sullen teenager vibe. Definitely. Right. Um, but the whole movie is just 
you know, then it gets to a point, it's like, even when she's on his side, he's still doing a lot of jokey things. The movie is comicalizing everything he does, almost, Mm -hmm. to the point where it's just kind of... It's just ridiculous, and and it, it... it, it it leaves you with a bad taste in your mouth with regards to how you see Miyagi. It's kind of like tragic that, that this is the Miyagi we're left with. But also right, in the course yeah. of the movie, he has to step up and be that cool badass at certain moments in the film. And that's hard to take seriously when, you know, he's driving around a bunch of monks uh, in, a, in a van. Well, I also think it's not helped by medium range shots that show how slowly and without force he is moving. <laughs> which is based solely on just Pat Morita's, you know, he's getting up there in years and he can't do what he used to do. And, Mm -hmm. and this movie just does not help him in any way, shape or form when those moments have to come up. And, you know, you're right in another, another way that you could defend this is sort of saying that when characters, uh, that are supposed to be tough and, you know, have this hard exterior, have been in enough installments of a series, Mm -hmm. they start to become these avuncular figures eventually, just because of the way that, that, you know, because of how we feel towards them, that that their image is kind of softened. That sort of happens a little bit naturally, but it's so forced here to do that. And I don't think that's what people like about Miyagi, too. It's like... The comedy, you know, it's it's the comedy was always just that that little bit extra. You know, you you have essentially a a, a very serious performance with this kind of cherry on top, which is that Pat Me- Pat Morita is a great comedian and he can nail a comic moment. Yeah, but, but all it's this always, movie gives back, him his comic like you, moments. Like you look back to the original movie, The Karate Kid, and you see how grounded everything in the movie is. Yeah. Including and especially his character. And if you watch just that movie and this movie, I mean, it's a Grand Canyon jump between what his character is in the first movie and what his character is in this movie. And I guess, you know, I guess I, having defended Karate Kid Part 3, I shouldn't mind <laughs> that we're not be, that we're not grounded. But I think my point would be that you've got to exchange it for something that works. And for me, the melodrama of the third movie works okay. because it's so uh, it's so overt. Doesn't work for me. But I know it, do, it doesn't. I understand it doesn't what you're saying. You. Yeah. But, uh, but, you know, I, I miss I miss the groundedness of of the first Karate Kid. And I miss, you know, I feel like if you. If you you know go full high school movie, you know, yeah, and it's not it's not really that either, and it's, right? Yeah, it's, all right. It's just that mid nineties fucking movie. <laughs> it's it's a sitcom movie, and that's this movie's problem. We're gonna take a break, everybody, and when we come back, we're gonna talk about uh, monk training and a final battle. There's a there's bungee jumping in this movie. That is how mid nineties it is. <laughs> So stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. If you're anything like me, you spend the majority of the day wondering whether you want coffee, beer, or wine. Whichever way you fall, Brew Bar has you covered. 
Located in the heart of Third Avenue Village in glorious downtown Chula Vista, California, which is also my neck of the woods, Brew Bar is a coffee shop, bar, and eatery rolled into one delightful package. Tim and Alex run the place, and let me tell you, listeners, these guys know their coffee. And after you've been in their company, so will you. They turned me on to pour over, and it's literally all I drink now. If for some crazy reason you don't want to try the best coffee in the world, they've got espresso drinks, all kinds of teas, and even coffee cocktails. You heard me. Coffee tails. And we're just getting started. Bottle service on craft beer and wine, alcoholic and caffeinated potions, an all-day food menu with plenty of vegan options. All served up in an atmosphere hip enough to know you're getting the best quality, but not too hip that you feel the need to drive to 7-Eleven and get a bucket of brown swill. Brew Bar. It's the best place to be for beer, wine, coffee and tea. And if you go, you might even see me. And we're back. Tom and I are still on to The Karate Kid Part 4, the 1994 Christopher Kane film... We're coming to the end of it, Tom. I mean... <laughs> it hasn't even started. I know. We, we are, this movie I, we, is we are not mi- extra. And I just wanted to le- reassure listeners that we are not missing anything out here. No. <laughs> <laughs> this movie does not begin, it does not end. Yeah, exactly. Um, like I said earlier, the crux of this movie is, it's, you know... Essentially, this movie or half of this movie takes place at the monastery. (laughs) It feels like it. (laughs) Yeah. And the only reason that's possible is because Julie gets suspended for taking care of a hawk. Right. And I I, again, there was there was a sort of a. Almost what I saw as a kind of visual symbol of. Of like getting rid of all the baggage of the franchise where it was like you do the fuck fuck what you want to a bonsai tree but don't hurt those birds Mm -hmm. (laughs) i was thinking like think about how precious bonsai trees were in certainly karate kid part three you know (laughs) daniel nearly dies saving a bonsai tree and here they're just like fuck that bonsai it's birds (laughs) that matter now for some reason yeah. <laughs> I also thought it was interesting that Mr. Miyagi could do the clap Miyagi trick on birds as well. It doesn't work just on on Danielson. Mm. He, he he can fix a wing with <laughs> with the clap rub. Yeah. And you know, we have a scene when they're on the road to the the monastery, uh Miyagi's able to tame a vicious dog. Yes. As well. Now, this brings me to something that I re- I wanted to to talk about, which was uh, something that comes up again and again in our discussions. We we've kind of bemoaned uh, the amount of kind of racism in some of the movies prevalent throughout all movies throughout all movies until two thousand and nineteen and a half. Um, yes. <laughs> but in the in the movies we've watched, we've you know we've said, oh, this shouldn't come down to race, or race is very badly right. handled. And here, there it seems to be it, it seems to be deliberately any discussion of racial conflict seems to be almost censored from this movie, to me. Yes, right. And 
in a way, that's what we... It is used it, for comic effect. Right. But it's... it's, it's At times. Kind of in what, weird ways. It's kind of what we've been wishing for. But be careful what you wish for, because it just comes across as disingenuous. As, yeah, right. Exactly. And I, so I was trying to think about... So the bowling scene is the best example of that. Well, I... I, I like I think basic. Well, every every time, every time there's a kind of conflict, th- you know, there's a race is the sort of subtext. I think, you know, it's like these mm-hmm. these these Hicks setting on Miyagi, uh, the the Alpha Elite setting on Miyagi, um, the <laughs> you know the, the 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 Buddhist monks and the guys and the you know the the kind of white working class bowlers. Bowlers, but then the bowlers, you know, it's this thing where the monks come in, and all these sort of working class Boston people. Yeah. Also, I think it's funny. There's not a single Boston accent in this whole movie, but <laughs> but it's but probably they're all it's probably filmed in Hawaii again. Yeah, exactly. They're all giving kind of side eye to these monks and like, what are you doing in our space and yeah, with our exactly. You know? And then three minutes later. They're, you know, bowing and, 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 you know, it's a love fest. Yeah. And I I think it is. They've learned through their Zen bowling of just walking up to the line and slowly pushing the ball down the lane. And that's the way to go for bowling for them for now on. They want to give, they want to give off this utopian idea of of this is a post-racial America. But, yes, but, but, right. But the, the fault lines are still there. It's just we're not talking, you know, it's just we're not talking about that clearly race is, is something that matters here. But it's interesting because something we didn't talk about uh, in, in the previous Karate Kid films is that, um, you know, Miyagi is racially abused by Kreese throughout yeah. those movies. The racial epithets in the movies are uh, like... Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, it's the, 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 the Japanese N-word is used. Yeah, uh, right. The S-word, which I won't even... You know, no. recount here, um, and so it's sort of like it's sort of like where's the you know where's the nice compromise between having to listen to this word coming out again and again, and you can't say it's not it you know it it clearly it just makes it makes total dramatic sense that Crease would feel this way, not not just because of his character but also his background in Vietnam, etc. Right. But, you know, I kind of want something between these. Doesn't make it better. Yeah, it doesn't but, better. It, but, yeah. you know, I also I also just don't believe that race isn't a factor in these in the dramatic conflicts of this movie. No, no. Yeah, you're no, absolutely. And it's interesting. And, you know, a bit of just a, a bit of trivia, which doesn't get us anywhere, but is just kind of interesting. It's when, you know, we have to put ourselves back in the mindset of of people at the time making the movie and Pat Morita in the sixties, his, um, his self given stage name was the hip nip. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So you, you have to also factor that in. It's like, how is Pat Morita feel about all this? Like, does you, maybe he wants, yeah, maybe I mean, he I... wants to, you know, the, to kind of, you know, he wanted to reclaim racist language against himself. Is that how he saw it? Well, and I think I think there's there's you know I'm I I imagine there was a time 
in any minority's life or, or Pat Morita's life where they felt like they had to do that, like to show you like you hear stories about Sammy Davis Jr. Yeah. Who had to endure a lot of that, even in the Rat Pack mm -hmm. and just sort of pretend like it didn't bother him. Yeah. But how could it not? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, but so it's, you know, it's just. I just think, you know, both. Uh, both sides of this are kind of insulting if you're a minority. Yes, right. Yeah. Because yeah, this yeah, one's, one right. is sort of trying to efface the problem completely. The other one is just, you know, it means that a lot of Southeast Asian people have to sit through movies where, you know, they're being racially abused throughout. Mm -hmm. So neither is a good situation to be in. But I just I found it. Right. I found it very hollow and inauthentic. Well, and it's the difference between, for instance, you know, we gave a lot of time in the in the uh, what was it? Number four. You may have to be more specific. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like blanking on the series. Final Destination? Yeah. Thank you. The Final Destination series. We gave a lot of play to that racist character who's saying and doing and terrible things and it's like vitriol and it's gross and it's ugly. But that's extra offensive because narratively not necessary. Right. And then you have a movie like Karate Kid and Karate Kid Part 3 where Kreese is saying things that are ugly but like to your point you could see why the character yeah, might say those definitely. things but also he's not the only character that says those no things. that's true so does you know what i mean so there's another character the silva character in karate kid part three who does not need to be you know what i i, I so it's so there, it's just like it's all ugly mm -hmm. And then in this movie, you go the opposite direction where you can sort of visually see that narrative yeah. or those words on in the mind of Michael Ironside. But he doesn't it completely. Say it, it is. It's just ridiculous to think that. Yeah. That, you know, and, and also the alpha elite on associated with white supremacy because yes. they're like, you know, they're like poster boys for. You know the the sort of the the meathead rapist um, attack on American diversity. Yes, and it's, it's it's just very it's it's very strange. But you know, I I, I think the other stuff makes your skin crawl. But in this movie, you're always thinking like this is gross. But they're not even. You know, it, it, there's a special amount of gross because they won't lean into how terrible these people are. Yeah. And then there's also, you know, part of it is like, again, it's sort of sitcom-y after school special because most of the bullies learn their lesson at the end of this movie. Yeah. Oh, oh, and... White supremacists learn their lesson at the end of this movie. Well, which also rings not true at all, you know? Something else that, well, I don't know if it rings true or not, but it's, to me, was very offensive, was how much screen time we spend on Eric and how much of Eric's story is mm -hmm. told in this movie where we've, it's like, what's the point of making a gender switch if you're going to allot so much screen time to, you know, the, the male hero character and his journey? 
Right. And it almost felt like, you know, this, I, I don't know how that, whether they upped his screen time because they were genuinely worried about Hilary Swank carrying the movie or just a, just a woman carrying the movie. I don't know, but mm-hmm. I just, I feel like he's almost got as much screen time as she has and his story is given just as much weight. Yeah. Um, I wonder whether there was an earlier draft in which he was the Karate Kid. I don't know. It certainly feels that well, way. Well, and also, you know, there's just sort of lots of weight given to the troubled, angry girl who puts on a dress and is seen as beautiful. Right. And I mean, I, I was I like she 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 it's like, you know, there's there's too much weight given to a woman, a young woman finding herself through the eyes of how a man sees her and the way that thing 100 the, the way that, that this it's always it's always kind of telling you know I, I guess the the big life lesson comes in the final fight sequence in these movies that fight sequence is just wow something else by the and way we, you know we have all these false starts it starts off with eric fighting the alpha elite yeah Right, which is also I'll note like one of my notes is, man, this high school student seems to have a lot of control over the docks. <laughs> they've got they've got cans on fire all over the place. They got so they have light. They've got you know, there's nobody patrolling. It's like they have full control. Yeah, it's just like it's <laughs> just imagine like Whitey Bulger sort of saying, "Hey, it's, yeah, it's, exactly. it's, the, it's the Boston Harbor. These are you can my do docks." High school kids, <laughs> do what you want. This is this is basically international waters. But then, of course, you have this whole thing of you know Miyagi, who's supposed to be the pacifist, who is, you know, up. Oh, Julie, earlier on in the, it's time for us to end. Earlier it. on Fuck in the movie, shit. Miyagi says Miyagi tries to find ways not to fight after he's just beaten the shit out of three people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but but beyond beyond that 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 whole sequence, it starts with Eric. It moves on to Julie, and because she's too good, well, it kind of moves on to Miyagi first. It's like, and then doesn't doesn't it end with Miyagi? He chooses not to fight. So yeah. it's it's Michael Ironside confronts Miyagi. Miyagi tries to walk away, mm. and then it's Julie, right? And then Miyagi takes over to beat up Michael Ironside. So she's sandwiched right. between these two men. Exactly. It, it, so and and the focus and basically, basically she's by virtue of the fact that she's technically superior to the people she's fighting, she doesn't get to fight. She right. beats them really easily mm-hmm. because she's got all the you know the grasshopper and she's got everything she needs and you know these guys are useless. So yeah, she's she's mastered the art of jumping from rock to rock in a rock garden. So it's just it just kind of extraordinary to me that that you know she doesn't she's constantly being buffered by the other male characters in the movie when this right. is supposed yeah. to be her no, story. Completely. Yeah. What do you think of and that? What you, do you think of um, Hilary Swank in this movie? Okay, I'm glad you asked because that's I think it's one of my most interesting notes is look, for those that are actors, there's we we've all had a beginning. <laughs> you know, there's there's a beginning to the process. For every saga there is a beginning. 
And right. it's usually Jake Lloyd. And the Lloyd. most interesting thing to me about her, she's completely serviceable in the movie. Mm. But where she's at her best is when when she has to feel genuine emotion to the point where she's crying. Mm. And then in the moments where she's just talking to Miyagi, so-and-so, and blah, 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 what happened to you, you know, how'd your day go? That's where it feels. And the there least are those scenes real. in this movie, everyone. Oh, there's plenty of those scenes in this movie. <laughs> and I found that fascinating about her performance that she could tap into honest emotion when the stakes were high, but felt less real in the day to day moments. Mm. How about you? I thought she was awful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean. I know, I know, I know she's, I know she's good, but I, I did not, I didn't see anything good in, in the, but I, I couldn't separate that from how just hideous a character Julie is. I mean, and, and this is, this is on the writers and the directors really more than No, her. I was going to say, that's not her that's fault. That's not, that's not her fault, but you know, um, and you know, she's the kind of actor that doesn't sort of gloss over character flaws and this is and character flaws is all she's got to work with here yeah. but every time she's on screen i just i i mean again it's like this movie this movie if you were already like on the fence as a misogynist and was like i think i hate women but i'm not sure this movie could put you over because she's she's everything that you know misogynists hate about women in movies is shrill she's awful she gives you right. nothing to care about or like um and i guess because she's playing that but again really well she, like because she's very right. competent that's the thing too. it makes it way worse when she when she was going around shouting at monks in that monastery I, I I was like I can't deal with this anymore. I really can't deal with this this character anymore. Um, because she's like I mean you know it's again just standard bad writing. She's zero to sixty every time she's on screen. Like it just goes zero to sixty every time she comes on screen. Um, and I think that's often true, but not always true. Far be it from me to suggest to you to rewatch this movie, but <laughs> there there are moments where, and it's always when tears are streaming down her face, those are the moments when she's the most grounded. Mm. And those are the moments where I like her character the most. Mm. Or her acting the most, at least. <laughs> I yeah I mean it it is it's you know I know I know in abstract she is a good actor but mm -hmm. I would get none of that from this movie I did get a little okay. of it I saw nuggets okay yeah but on the whole this movie is a fucking train wreck hmm it's a disaster from start to finish and it killed the series it did, and it's you know we, we I don't know if we've we've talked much about music in these films, but I mean one one of the one of the ways in which everybody I, will have a chance to hear it at the beginning and end of our episode. That's true, <laughs> sadly. <laughs> um, but another way, and I think which this this movie is like 
it's putting all its money on 1994. <laughs> the whole pot is going into to like you know. The I'd cult- like to put five thousand dollars on like, 1994, it's, it's saying, please. It's saying this movie's gonna look great forever if 1994 is. The future of our culture is is yeah. If, if nineteen ninety four exists in perpetuity, <laughs> we're good because we've got it's it's you know the 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 three big musical moments of this movie start with M people. Oh yeah, go into the cranberries. There is yeah. a scene with monks dancing to the cranberries in this movie. At, After she's finally learning to not be a dick to the monks, she tries to be respectful and turn it off, and they turn it back on to dance. <laughs> Yeah, I've never wanted someone to be Radio Rahim more than anyone in a film. Um, <laughs> get that chokehold cop in there. Um, and then uh, Desiree to lead us out of the movie. I mean, yes, the most short-sighted soundtrack I could possibly think of. And yet they, uh, they I, th- I remember being really shocked with that military music that starts the movie. It's like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before in this franchise. Yeah, yeah. That's really weird. Uh, and then we get a few of the panpipes like going through and the and the fake Eastern stuff. Um, but it's interesting. Like you, 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 with Karate Kid two and three, you expect. I guess this does it a little bit. You expect the eighties. The, the parts of this franchise in the 80s to be to be more dated mm-hmm. but and certainly you know you have to you have to see two and three in the context of the late 80s but sure you cannot unsee 1994 you can't you're I was gonna say you cannot undo the 1994 from this movie uh, you know bungee jumping from the rafters yeah I know um is it's but it's just you know it's interesting to me because i i kind of question myself on this is like you know i am i am i just am i just being a a a musical hypocrite because you know stuff that i music pop music that i really like in movies uh surely dates it you put you know you you have a movie in the 60s you put in the rolling stones or the beatles that that gives you a flavor of that age but it also gives mm-hmm. you music that you might want to hear after the year it was recorded. <laughs> and I think that's got to be the <laughs> distinction, you know? I mean, this is this is my issue right. with Bon Jovi and Young Guns 2. It's like going back to a Bon Jovi song you never wanted to hear again. Well, I, dis- I, I disagree with you there. I, I'm always ready for that fucking song. So, I, yeah, I, I just, it's, <laughs> it's so, there's a, there's a definite, I mean, by the time Scorsese uses, you know, Gimme Shelter 50,000 fucking times in his movies, he's pretty sure at that point this song <laughs> is going to last a long time. People are it'll, always going to want to hear this song. <laughs> like when you're watching in 2020 or, you know, the next century, this is this song, you know, the, this song has stood already stood the test of time. But here they're basically saying, well, it's number three in the charts, so it's going on the soundtrack. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, I I got nothing else left for the next Karate Kid. I'm ready to throw that on the the junk pile of film history and move on, my friend. We're going to pitch a sequel next. Sounds good. All right. For Tom Stewart from Lonesome Whistle Productions, I am Mike Schantz from the How Dare You Awards. Ladies and gentlemen, 
that's it for the Karate Kid series. Karate Kid Part 2, Karate Kid Part 3, and the next Karate Kid. Coming up next, we're going to pitch a sequel. See you soon. Say bye, Tom. Woohoo! Bye. <laughs>